Lord, we pray that that vision would be clear, that the lives that have been redeemed would show that they've been redeemed. We praise you for the life that we can have in Christ and for the life that we can show forth. And I pray that you would bless us to that end and direct our ways. Lord, as we come to the word, may we continue to strive to bend our thoughts to it, to think your thoughts after you, to grow in our capacities to filter our world, to read it rightly. And Lord, how humbling these days are as we recognize we know so little that our ignorance is great. But may we draw upon you and your wisdom, and I pray that you would help us in a troubled world to shine as light to those, for those who know not Christ as Savior, we pray that you'd open their eyes to the truth and continue to guide and nurture and bless your people. For those that are watching us by live stream because they would, though they'd love to be here, cannot, we pray your unique blessing upon them, that you'd comfort them and direct them, and may they find hope and joy in you. And as we have gathered here, as David has prayed, what a privilege it is, what a joy it is, and may we now feed upon your word through the ministry of your spirit, through Jesus we pray, amen. Please be seated. My sermon last week was an hour and a half long. It's just that nobody stuck around for the last 45 minutes, (laughs) including me. So this is really homiletically improper, but we just are going to pick up right in the middle of where we left off last week, and I'm actually hoping that the second half is another 45 minutes. It could be an hour and a half for a whole series, I think, but uh, some were not in attendance last week. It's wonderful to see you here today, and for all of us, many have long forgotten what that message was about last week, so let me bring us all together and jump right back in. We sketched out a biblical theology of that evil union between power and hatred, with emphasis on the racial tensions that have boiled over in, our, in recent days. And my concern is not to hop on the train of popular interest. My concern, rather, is that we not lose our balance, but continue to think biblically about our world. A Christian worldview is not optional, and it never goes out of vogue, grows obsolete. It is, as always, our very life. So there is a danger that we swallow myths, and we must continually then strengthen our biblical filtering system so that we not be taken in by myths. Last week, we talked about the suffering that results when loveless hatred unites with positions of power. We saw this in the garden, and it continues to show itself wherever this combination comes. A lack of love in the heart, coupled with the tool of power in the hand, leads to suffering of many people. And this is not, then, something we're pulling out of the pages of our world, the contemporary scene, but this is something we find in the Garden of Eden, and it continues to show itself in the pages of Scripture, and we worked our way through quite a bit of that last week. But as we think of it by way of review, remember the creation mandate, that God says, exercise dominion over the earth and fill it, which means in cooperation, you will exercise dominion over the earth. So there's a call there to exercise rule and power. 
But as we see Adam and Eve, we see Adam using his position of authority given to him by God to harm Eve. And we saw in the curse of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16 that this would become systemic to the sin of the heart that she would seek to control, that she would seek to manipulate by nature her husband. And that he, by nature, would use his position of authority given by God to harm her, to rule over her, to be harsh with her, not loving with her. So everything that God designed there in the garden is turned upside down now in the sin that clings to the heart. And we asked, well, did it get better with the children? No, it did not. We see now it actually goes deeper. Cain killing Abel using, if nothing else, at least the element of surprise to rule over him in a domineering way, in a way that uh, ends his life. We then move to Joseph and his brothers within the book of Genesis, and we remember how the brothers, in their superior numbers, with hearts filled with hatred and jealousy, sell him into slavery. This is unjust, it is unloving, it is wickedness. But they do it. And again, in the early pages of Scripture, we see God revealing to us this is what's in the heart of man. It doesn't get any better for Joseph in slavery in Egypt, but rather gets, finds himself in Potiphar's home and Potiphar's wife using the spurned hatred in her heart combined with the power that she had as Potiphar's wife, there is a tremendous injustice against Joseph, and he's actually now sent to prison. Did nothing wrong. But in that power structure of that setting, he is now imprisoned. And what happens to Joseph, we remember, happens on a national scale to Israel in Egypt. And I think it is very significant for us to continue to remember as Christian believers that Israel's identity was slavery. They were a nation enslaved. We saw this redemptive theme that, continued to play, that continues to play out in the Old Testament, that God delivered Israel from oppression. And that theme is preparing for more than that. It's preparing for, of course, the deliverance that will come in Christ that is far grander than deliverance even from slavery. And that is the slavery to sin. But at any rate, think of it, this is Israel's identity. This is how she saw herself as a nation, as a nation of those who had been liberated from slavery. We move to the Mosaic Law, and that story, that identity, was to show itself in the way that Israel related to strangers. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. So you were in Egypt, and you were done wrong, you were treated with injustice, but now that you're in your land, you have the power to mistreat others, but you won't do it. You shall treat the stranger and sojourners with you as the native among you. You'll treat them like you treat yourself, like you treat other Israelites. And you shall love him as yourself. Do you see it there? Now you're in a place of power. But you are to love, not hate and not disregard and not abuse or oppress. You are to love him as yourself. 
For, here's the connection, why, here's the basis, the foundation, you were strangers in the land of Egypt, and I am the Lord your God. I delivered you from that type of situation. You will not become the kind of people who use your power to harm others. Not you. You are a unique, precious, chosen, redeemed people. The whole world, all of world history, you're going to be different. That's the law of God, the covenant of God with Israel. And we come then to the monarchy. We discussed that as well last week. And remember 1 Samuel 8, Samuel warns Israel that having a king would subject Israel to his abuse of power. That's an odd word for these unique people who were never to harm others. But Samuel says, when you get a king in place, he is going to have power like you don't understand, and the heart is going to show itself to be sinful, and you are going to suffer at the hand of your own king. He's going to essentially enslave your children to advance his world, his kingdom. And you'll benefit, but you'll also suffer. That was Samuel's warning. What do we see? This is epitomized in the rule of Solomon. As Israel comes to a place of great wealth and fame and yet suffers substantially because of that oppression. Then we saw it in King David who ruled with justice and righteousness. And we focused on that last week. In his godly reign he blessed Israel but then Bathsheba. Using his position of power he initiates and I, again as I mentioned last week I don't think she had a whole lot of option in the situation, he uses his power to bring her to his home, committing adultery with her, and then using that same power to kill Uriah, a man who is defending David's own name in the army. So even a godly man after God's own heart, the one who spoke about the son to come who would redeem, even that man uses his power where there is a lack of love toward Uriah, and he kills the man. Because he had the power to do so. And it really gets spooky there, doesn't it? Because you know deep in your heart you can put yourself in that scene of a funeral for somebody and you wipe the tears from your eyes and inside your heart you're saying, I don't really mind that they're gone. We know it's there. We know our selfishness. We know what it could lead to. We just don't know the power that David had. If you had the power to speak the word and somebody would be removed from your life, that would be more tempting than we probably perceive. It's everywhere, at every level, at the deepest part of our soul. And we move forward to the next point, and that is to the prophets of Israel, to the next era or to the next uh, unit as we consider the Old Covenant. And I want to bring out just two points here. And the first is Israel's power brokers were routinely rebuked and warned by the prophets. One of the consistent sermons that the prophets preached to Israel was to honor her covenant with God. To honor the covenant as a nation of former slaves redeemed from Egypt by God's mighty hand. So God instructed Israel not to use positions of power like Egypt did, 
but rather to love, not to harm. So mercy was God's way. The abuse of power would result in judgment. An an example of this is found in Isaiah 10. I invite you to find that text, to turn to that page, Isaiah chapter 10. We have here a fairly typical line. It's fairly succinct, so I've chosen this just as an, an exhibit of the prophet's call to Israel. Israel's power brokers rebuked and warned. Isaiah chapter 10 and verse 1. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression. What's he talking about? Well, beginning at chapter 9 and verse 8, Isaiah warns the northern kingdom of Israel of pending judgment for her rebellion against him. And here God especially singles out men who use their positions of power to issue decrees and to write laws that harm the vulnerable and take advantage for the powerful. What evil did these laws that they are writing accomplish? Notice four ideas in verse 2. Writing these oppressive laws to turn aside the needy from justice. That is, these laws and decrees were established to deny justice to those who most needed it. Second, to rob the poor of my people of their right. That is, they denied basic human rights to the poor. Number three, that widows may be their spoil. Issuing decrees, writing laws, so that they can take out of the little that widows had. Impoverishing widows struggling to survive with no power to fight back in that setting, in that culture. And number four, and that they may make the fatherless their prey. This is just pure evil. It's wickedness. I don't know if anybody woke up in the morning and said, let's see how I can exploit children without fathers. But the selfish heart excused itself and they wrote these laws. Young people in that day, children in that day, fathers were the primary breadwinner. They exploited those children and took more away from them from the little that they had. Such oppressed people cried to God and they said, what can we do? What can we do against these powerful law writers? The officials that are doing this to us. What can we do? It's interesting what happens here in Isaiah's right. He now takes that question and he turns it right back on them. Right back on these powerful abusers. Verse 3. What will you do on the day of punishment? In the ruin that will come from afar. To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? The smug power broker is now set down and stopped in his tracks. As God says, let me ask you what you're going to do. They used their power to abuse the downtrodden. The superior armies of Assyria are now going to come and run them over. Where will you leave your wealth? He asks. There in verse 3. To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your wealth? The word wealth there is actually the Hebrew word kavod, which we usually translate glory. Where are you going to leave your glory? 
Where are you going to leave your fame? Where are you going to leave your wealth? Because you're not bringing it with you. They are going to take your wealth from you and they are going to overrun you. And where are you going to go then? Verse 4, nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners, to fall among the slain. That's your lot. That's what's coming. Their abusive powers. You think you're abusing the, the, the fatherless right now? They are going to crush you, this Assyrian army. You have stirred God's anger, yet, verse 4, for all this his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. It's a severe warning. And it all came to fulfillment. So, verse 5, it makes sense, does it not? Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in my hands is my fury. God will use Assyria to punish Israel for her sin, including the systemic injustice her leaders exercise against the poor, the needy, and the vulnerable. They are now going to get this tenfold as Assyria comes in and doesn't care one bit who lives or dies or what they take or what they destroy. They're more powerful with hearts filled with hate and you are going to be crushed. Verse 6, against a godless nation, I send him. I send who? I send Assyria against a godless nation. Well, Assyria is a godless nation. But here, who's the godless nation? It's Israel. And against the people of my wrath, I command him, I command Assyria to come and to take spoil. Now, Don't just spin by those words. Put yourself in the scene and say, this is what's coming down to you. This is what you're going to face. They're going to take spoil. That means they're going to come on your property and they're going to take it away. They're going to seize plunder. They're going to tread down like the mire of the streets, your people. That's what's coming. That's what you're going to face. This sort of message is somewhat routine in the prophetic writings. Israel has broken covenant with God and her judgment will be severe oppression by Assyria. Israel, Assyria, and Judah, Babylon in 586 B.C., Assyria in 722 B.C. So secondly, and we will look at it just briefly here from a few texts that I'll put up here in slides, but... Israel suffers that judgment and oppression. So the prophets are prophesying it. They're warning Israel to turn from these types of activities. Having done that now, we look at the actual oppression of Assyria and Babylon in their oppression of Israel, and it's ugly. I mean, it gets as ugly as it can possibly be. It goes so far to the point of parents eating their children because there's just no food. It's horrific history of the abuse of power. Now, God is in it. Let me hold on to that for a moment. God is in it providentially using Assyrian Babylon to discipline his people. But God is not morally responsible for the sin that they commit and indeed judges Assyria and Babylon in their time. So we don't put evil on God, but we say, left to themselves, this is what they will do. They will do this in my providential permission, and they will judge you. 
So here it is. Some of the history, but they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising their words, scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. What's verse 16 saying? Prophets kept coming, Israel kept just mocking them. Yeah, it's not going to happen, we're good, we're safe, all is well. Verse 17, therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword. Now again, don't skip by it. Put yourself in it. They killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or age. He gave them all into his hand and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his princes. All these he brought to Babylon and they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. That is, it's the 70 years of discipline. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill those 70 years due to the judgment upon Israel. But again, notice what's happening. Now we get a little further into the weeds with Lamentations. And it becomes a little more vivid to us. Where Jeremiah probably writes, Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers. Our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. Slaves rule over us. Their slaves rule over us. We're that low. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives. Women are raped in Zion. Young women in the towns of Judah, princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill and boys stagger under loads of wood. This is heavy oppression. And it is what Israel suffered. We move to Israel in captivity. And while we'll not look at any text here, just remember as you think of the account of Scripture, Israel fared better in captivity than she did in Egypt, in slavery, and even far better than she did under um, the siege of Assyria, uh, but, and then later uh, Jerusalem when Babylon took the south. But the book of Esther reveals more oppression as the Jews living under Persian rule nearly suffered genocide. You remember the account there. As the king uh, permits Haman to set forth a decree, think back to Isaiah 10, to write a decree that says you are free to wipe out any Israelite living in your community. And how did, that, how did people respond to that? How did the Persian people, the common village, town, city respond? Well, why would we want to do that? We're supposed to love those around us. Why would we want to kill anybody? No, what, what happened? Immediately. Yeah, we'll kill them. Let's take them out. Let's wipe this people group. 
from the face of the earth. It was only the providence of God that spared Israel. As Israel returns to the land, uh, in God's mercy, after 70 years in captivity under the rule of Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, the Jewish people return to the promised land and they have been cured of formal idolatry. Israel never again struggles with worshiping other gods and bowing down formally to idols. But let me ask, what do you know of the human heart? What has the scriptures revealed to this point in this particular study? What do we know? Were the idols of their heart gone? No. They have been as severely disciplined as you can be. To the point in these sieges where they were eating one another to stay alive. They have been humbled to the ground because of their oppression in part. They come back now to the land, cured of formal idolatry, but not cured of the hatred in the heart. Freshly returned from exile, Israel's power brokers do what? You know what's coming. They go right back to their oppressive ways. The Jews return to the promised land. They rebuild the temple. Nehemiah leads them to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And I invite us now to Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5. Comes after First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah chapter 5. And we look at where Israel goes right back to it. Here it is. Now let me just sketch out the background briefly. As we enter chapter 5, the Jews are facing two major problems. Number one is famine. They've not been able to get the crops uh, ready for food that they need. And maybe that was complicated by the fact that they were doing a lot of work on the wall of Jerusalem. But coupled with that, it's sort of like stacked up, the problems stacked up on one another. Coupled with that was the fact that the king was saying, you owe us taxes. And since you're not paying, we're going to put you further into trouble. And in that situation, there were power brokers in Israel against their own people who had begun to sell grain at high cost, began to repossess land from these impoverished people, and they went so far that they were actually saying to some people, yes, we have grain, we have food, here it is, and in exchange, give me your children who are now going to become my slave. They're Israelites doing this to one another, given the power to do so. So their countrymen are starving, and they use that position of power and wealth to capitalize on the misfortune of others, enslaving their children, taking possessions of their lands. With that in view, let me read just straight through several verses here of Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1. Now, there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers, for there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. We've got a lot of mouths to feed, is how we say it sometimes. So let us get grain, that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields our vineyards and our houses, to get grain because of the famine. They're, they're losing their property just to feed their families. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. I mean, th these are our people, 
Our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. I mean, just it's heart-wrenching. Some of our daughters have been sent off. I mean, they're probably keeping the boys because their work was in the field, at least at this point. But many of the daughters had gone, gone to be domestic slaves of these Israelites who were using this situation to their advantage. It's horrifying. You just think of these parents saying, we've lost our daughters to this. We've got no choice. We've got to feed the many mouths in our families. Verse 8, and he said to them, and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. Oh, I'm sorry. I got eight instead of six. Verse six. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials and I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother and I held a great assembly against them. And I said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold back to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. What is he saying? This has been going on with the nations around. People have been enslaved, and we've spent our money to buy them back and redeem them, and now that they're back in the land, you're capturing them and selling them into slavery so you can make a profit off of them as slaves. First, you have them do your work, then you sell their their person like property. This is horrific, and they have nothing to say. Verse 9, so I said, the thing that you are doing is not good Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? You're you're a bad example to the nations. You're bringing dishonor to God. You see, this, this is a God thing. It's not you have the economic power to do this. It's you are disobeying God. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting interest. Stop this. He says, I'm trying to help them and you're harming them. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. This is not saying that he's trying to introduce here an entire new economic system that he's taking everything that's owed and just canceling it out. There's a lot more to it than this, but what he's saying is quit taking advantage You've got to restore these things. Uh, There would be some accounting where there's borrowing and the like. He's not just dismissing all of that. But you've got to stop treating them this way. Now, let's take a a deep breath um, and just stop for a moment. I want to do two more things. A second at some length. But press with me. I want to stop here after the survey of the Old Testament. This is kind of a creation to Christ concept. So now that we've come to the end of the Old Covenant survey, I'd like to just draw a couple of ideas to the more practical focus of our setting and racism. Then I want to move to Christ and bring this all together. So if you can follow me through that, let's first just say what we learn 
from this survey of Scripture is that oppression of the weak is deeply rooted in the human heart. This is one of the ideas of the biblical worldview that I think is really important that we strengthen right now. Because the way the world is looking at the troubles that we are seeing is not going in this direction. America's fundamental problem is not racism. Racism is one fruit of a much deeper and more evil root in the human heart. So we hear loud cries saying that if racial injustice in America was gone. It is the grandest of all failures in human history, and if we could just get rid of this, it would all be well. It would not all be well. People will oppress in a thousand other ways because we've got to go deeper. In speaking this way, what they're doing is firing rocket launchers at a branch of apples and think they can kill the tree like that. No, every nation on earth is corrupt to the core with the unloving abuse of power at every level of society. Oppression oozes down into every nook and cranny of the human experience. And this is what's concerning is that we get so fixated on racism that we miss this whole point. That husbands abuse wives. That wives manipulate husbands. That parents oppress and harm children in unspeakable ways. That older siblings oppress younger siblings. It may just be with teasing. It just may be using power to get a toy away. But it can become deeply rooted and ugly. Owners exploit managers and managers oppress workers. Some of the stories some of you have told me about the way bosses act, it's terrible. You know it. Pastors use their influence wrongly to manipulate and exploit churches for their own advantage. Politicians use their powers to control and harm constituents for political gain. Women and children are raped and sold into sex trafficking all over this world and in this city. And we've not even gotten started with tribalism, Racism, gang warfare, terrorism, slavery, genocide, ethnic cleansing, and war. There's more being done right now to the Uyghur Chinese than has ever been done to black Americans right now. It's everywhere. Wherever And whenever you find unloving people with the power to take advantage of others, a Bible believer should never be surprised when they do. And wherever able, these people will work to legalize and structure their abuse of power into the fabric of the society, which is what is so troubling these days because we can point to the roots of systemic oppression that some ways, maybe not as much as some people think or in places where they think, but in some ways continues to influence our society. 
And we see the people bringing this out saying, just turn the controls over to us and we'll get it right. No, you won't. It goes a lot deeper. So let me then say, secondly, it is a deadly underestimation to think that racism is America's fundamental sin. Or to think that it can be rooted out by human design, changing political systems, establishing new laws, renaming things, seating minorities in positions of power. I'm not saying that all of those are bad ideas necessarily. I'm saying that is not going to fix the problem. The poisonous root of the heart of man runs so much more deeply than racism. And this is the thing that's concerning because if we don't keep our feet here, We'll miss this point. Ephesians 2 says that we are dead in transgressions and sins. We are by nature objects of God's wrath. This hatred of the heart that abuses and oppresses is there in all of us. And the tragic consequences are not merely societal. They are eternal. Where is the eternal word being announced in our society today as racism is addressed? It's absent. Where is the message? Treat someone this way and you will stand before the throne of God. That message is laughed right off the stage. But that's the truth. Fail to stand on God's side of history in eternity and you will suffer his wrath. No matter how rich or poor, no matter the color of your skin, that is irrelevant. You will face a God of judgment. So, we must be rescued from our depravity. Not simply rescued from racism, one branch of evil fruit on the tree. We need the whole tree to be uprooted and we need to become a new tree. And there is no other answer. But that brings us to the answer. And that is Jesus Christ who suffers. Now let's think of his incarnation in the concepts that we're developing here. We've traced at some length this lethal union in the heart between a lack of love and a position of power. Think of Jesus Christ. The pre-incarnate Christ was all-powerful and his very nature was love. Yet in a profound twist of wisdom, Jesus laid aside his power. He did not come to earth presenting as the benevolent monarch of the universe, which he indeed is. Rather, he humbled himself and ultimately, catch this, he suffered the most cosmic abuse of power the world will ever know. No one has ever suffered injustice like Jesus Christ. He gets it. Fearful that Jesus would cost them their position of power, the chief priests, the Pharisees, plotted to murder him, John 11. Let's just take him out so we can protect our position. That's all that was in their heart. That's where they were headed. And for purely political reasons, we read it here in John 19 today, Pilate's trying to get him off, but for political reasons, he says, okay, I'll do it. I'll sign off on this torturous death. 
So there's this collaboration between the power brokers of Israel and we see the all-powerful Son of God standing there and submitting to this abuse. The leaders of Israel, the empire of Rome coming together and serving in justice like it has never been served before. And he stood there. As Acts 2 brings this out, it was clearly the message of the New Testament church. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. Here's who he is. Here's the person. Here's the pristine, sinless Son of God. He is a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. No question who he is. No question that he was sinless. No question that he was God and loved as only God can love. This Jesus, verse 23, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Don't miss that. But this Jesus, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That is the ultimate injustice. That is a rebellion against God. But of course, it was by suffering this injustice. Put that together. Catch this. It's by suffering that injustice that Jesus satisfied the justice of God against sinners who trust Christ's sacrifice for their sins. And driven by relentless love, Jesus' death is good news particularly for the downtrodden, the abused, the oppressed, those who suffer injustice. This is the prophetic word of Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to whom? To the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God to, the, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. The tree's gone, it's a new plant. And that's who they are, these oppressed people through Christ. This is good news. This is not wishful thinking. This is truth about what really happened. This is not dreamland about achieving justice through ridiculously inadequate political means. This is the reality. This is what Christ did for the oppressed as the oppressed, the Savior. And from another and more inclusive angle, Christ died for His enemies. The love in His heart of this all-powerful God who has come in flesh is to die for his enemies. For those who are by nature the objects of divine wrath, Ephesians 2.3 and Romans 5.8, he died to rescue his people from the evil that naturally corrupts their heart. And what does he do under this new covenant? He gives them a new heart. Now here's where I want to bring it all together. It kind of links together right, I think, at this point. Think of this. It is here that the storyline links naturally to the matter of racism with the word identity. Racism is very much about 
identity. Some people identify as the oppressed minority. Some people identify as the majority who to one degree or another are advantaged by that reality if only because godless people have used that same position to oppress a minority culture. There's an identity we bring into this. Those who are immigrants to our land bring a different identity to the conversation, to the consideration. But branching out well beyond the story of blacks and whites in America, there's nothing wrong with celebrating these differences and embracing one's ethnic heritage, the good parts of it. And we would encourage that, to celebrate those distinctions, to honor them, to know this is part of the plan of God, that there is nothing at all to do but to rejoice in one's ethnic heritage. But, capital B-U-T, but, through the gospel, our identity becomes linked with the suffering Savior. The Apostle Paul was proud of his Israelite heritage as witnessed in Romans chapter 9. He spoke of it. He celebrated it. I'm a Benjamite. I mean, what does that mean? I'm an Israelite and from that tribe and I take courage in that. I rejoice in it. Was that Paul's ultimate identity? Just consider this string. I have been crucified with Christ. I don't think that word crucified is just a throwaway word. I identify with the suffering Savior. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. He redeemed me. I am a new tree of righteousness planted by the Lord. I have a new heart under this new covenant. And I see myself this way. I'm crucified with Christ. I enter into His torture. I enter into His suffering. I see Him as my identity. We know that our old self, he writes to the Romans, our old man in Adam was crucified with Him. My identity as a man in Adam is in a sense over. I mean, it's there, but it's been replaced with my identity in Christ. To the Colossians, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You died to who you are. Your identity as a human being, you died. And your life is now joined with Christ. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will appear with Him in glory. And what do we know from Revelation? How will we appear with Him in glory? As people speaking different languages, as people having different ethnic backgrounds, and all one in Christ. That's our identity. We see the distinctions humanly that He has created and we rejoice in them. But our highest identity is in Christ crucified forever. And if our focus here today is in a place that's different than where it will be then, to that degree, we're not connected to reality. We could develop this in the entire chapter 2 of Ephesians, but Paul writes, Therefore remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, 
alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. Your identity was not in God, and you were therefore hopeless. Whoever you were, whatever nation you were from, however you looked, all of that irrelevant, you had no hope. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility, that hate that separates every individual from every individual that came to us from Adam and Eve, that hatred is displaced. And it is filled with a heart of love in Christ who unites people as simply an implication of the fact that we've been united to Him. That's our identity. That's the ultimate identity, and that's the identity that matters. I've said so many times, as I've come back and travel across this world, how much closer I am to people who look nothing like me and have no shared culture, I'm so much closer to them than I am to some of my neighbors. It's this identity in Christ that is all important. And apart from this identity in Christ, I'm sorry, but there's no answer to racism. There's no answer to genocide. There's no answer to the hatred that leads to divorce and the abuse of children and selling people into sex trafficking. There is no real answer. We can do some things to limit this, and we should legally. But here's where we get to the real hope. And I think it's a shame for us as Christians to run away in this day when we have that hope and to stand back and just listen to the rhetoric. As Peter said, you are now a kingdom of priests. You are now a holy nation. That's your identity in Christ. And it cuts across all these minor ethnic distinctions. As we are united in Him, our head. As Jesus' death and resurrection bridge the greatest of divides, Jew and Gentile, so our identity is African, Asian, Hispanic, Eastern European, Western European, Native American, whatever it is, never goes away, but it is swallowed up in our cosmic identity with the suffering and risen Christ. I am crucified with Him. My life is hidden in Christ. I think that we can substantiate this thinking from a fairly strange place in the Gospel accounts. But think about it. When Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Stop for a moment. That's Jerusalem, Israelites, to whom he has come to share the message of the kingdom of God unto salvation. Go into the villages of Israel, he says to his disciples earlier in his ministry. That's the Jerusalem. How did he relate to them as a Jewish man? How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? 
and you were not willing. We just see the longing there in Christ's heart. I love you. I've come to redeem you. I so want to gather you to my side. But you weren't willing. What's the answer? Your house is left to you desolate. He says this of his own people, of his own ethnic people, because they've rejected him. Jerusalem standing here for the nation, Jesus coming to rescue the lost sheep, he expresses his longing, but they didn't respond. And so their house is left desolate. And where does this lead? Well, it's already been leading there earlier in his ministry. Earlier in this book of Matthew, he says, in the context of the healing of a paralyzed servant of a Roman centurion of all people who trusted Christ for deliverance. He said, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. The east and the west, that's what's here today. That's what's displayed in this congregation. We have people from the east and the west who are Gentiles who will gather at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, while the sons of the kingdom, who's that? Those who have rejected him will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So your ethnic identity, my ethnic identity, rejoice in it, celebrate it, and hold it loosely. Nothing wrong with it, unless you make something wrong with it. But always know that it is your identity in Christ that will matter for eternity. We draw such distinctions so easily on the basis of what we see and where we're located. Remember this. Are you in Christ? That's all that will matter, ultimately. Jesus' own Jewish ethnicity, his love for his people, his zealous desire to draw them under his wing was set aside ultimately that all could come to identify with him. By his death, his resurrection, Jews and Gentiles united to become the body of Christ through baptism of the Holy Spirit. So now our identity is in Christ, in the one who suffered not merely racism, but in the one who suffered all the raging forces of evil. He did suffer racism. Is why Rome put him to death unjustly, because he was a Jew. They could. But he suffered far more evil. All the raging forces of evil he took on in submission that we might have life in his name and be delivered from the sin that separates us from him, and that we might then forever and ever say, I am crucified with Christ. I am in Him. He is my identity. This is no dismissal of the suffering of any ethnic group anywhere. Certainly not a dismissal of the suffering African Americans have indeed endured in this nation's history. Horrific treatment. White majority Christians, how do we respond to that? We should honor this heritage of suffering precisely because we understand the depths of human depravity and precisely because we identify with the persecuted church throughout the world and because we identify with a suffering Savior. Don't dismiss it. We lament it. We get how wicked the human heart is. 
Any dismissing of that is just ridiculous. It's probably just pride and sin and a lack of love. So we care about what has happened in this nation's history to African Americans. We care about what is happening to Uyghur Muslims right now. Homes separated, people put in concentration camps, re-education camps, taken out of those re-education camps with no reference to their family and sent to work camps and factories throughout China with no ability to get back to their family. We care about that. We know the wickedness of the heart that leads to that. But there is literal, actual hope in identifying with the suffering and victorious Savior's free grace to sinners. And that is our message of hope. May we send it out. May we speak it in a dark world. There is hope in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for reminding us of your glorious saving grace in Christ that you gave him to us to rescue us from sin, to give us life and hope in his name. May everyone here who knows Jesus say, he is my identity. My old man, my old self in Adam is dead. And I am now a new man, a new woman in Christ. May we celebrate that. And for those that have, not, have no claim at this point to that identity, I pray that you draw them to yourself, that you'd show them the life that's in Christ, and that they would know that that water of life is free. May they drink it today. To this end we pray in Christ's name. Amen.